All right, so Revelation 4, 1 to 11. Before we read the text, um, just think with me here. Probably won't take much to kick up some of the stuff in this realm of anxiety and frustration and fear. So we're on day 527 of daily coronavirus news and all that that entails. As I prayed, there's this grievous situation in Afghanistan, uh, much worse than it needed to be due to failure of our current administration. Sexual revolutionaries continue to march ahead militantly, brash rejection of God's good, wise, loving design for our bodies and souls. All that's happened in Haiti recently, president assassinated, earthquake, leaves over 2,000 dead. National debt, $28 trillion and counting. Just read that millions of, there was a report, millions of U.S. government dollars used for the harvest of fetal parts for research. There's scandals among Christian leaders, previously high-profile Christian leaders now deconstructing and denying the faith. I mean, I could go on and on, right? But this is our week, right? This is watch the news, hear the report, like left and right, over and over and over again on repeat. Seems like the world's burning sometimes. Does it ever feel like God's like, are you just asleep at the switch? I mean, what, what are you up to? What about your personal internal world? Does that feel like it's kind of out of control? Anger, discouragement, fear, shame, anxiety, depression, feeling overwhelmed, coldness, unmotivated, dull, dry, hopeless. Will I ever change? Will this ever change? Why won't this change? So into all this chaos, whether personal, you know, national, on the world stage, the resurrected Lord Jesus comes to us today through the book of Revelation, and he says, come up here. You've got to see this. That's what he's saying. Not just to John, but to us as well. So quick context. Apostle John, right, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He receives this vision. He sees first the resurrected Lord Jesus, chapter 1. And then the seven golden lampstands surrounding him, representing the seven churches that Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3. And as Jesus addresses these churches, which are representative of the people of God, he commends and he warns them. And though what he says differs, you know, church to church, all of these churches receive a call to persevere to the end, to be overcomers, to be conquerors, if they're going to receive the crown of life. So they are in need of grace to overcome, especially in light of the fact that they are suffering or there's persecution that they're facing or about to face. So, let's look at Revelation 4. Before we read 4, 1 to 11, look first at 321. So this is the end of the seven letters. It's the last of the seven letters. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. And you can find this on page, I think it's 1030 in the Pew Bible. Am I right? Anybody confirm that? Yes. Okay, great. So 321, because we need to see an important connection between chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. So Jesus says, the one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So chapters 2 and 3, if you're familiar with them, can be sobering. They can be fear-inducing because of these warnings. You know, Jesus is kind of evaluating these churches and saying, you know, this is good, but this needs to change. The visions of 4 and 5 give grace for enduring and overcoming until the end. In a sense, chapters 4 and 5 are the center of the book until we get to the end where everything is made new, when Jesus returns and everything is made new. So this grace, this power, comes by way of what John sees and what he hears as Jesus pulls back the curtain and lets us see what is really going on. Okay, so in the midst of suffering, persecution, threats, tribulation, and, you know, we need to endure to the end. We need to conquer. We need to be overcomers. Ah, I need grace for this. This is hard. There is grace for this. Come on up here. You got to see this. Okay, so let's read 4, 1 through 11, and then we're going to look at what we need to see, what we need to hear, how we overcome, and then we'll ponder a little bit about what it looks like for this will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so let's read Revelation 4, 1 through 11. Um, First, we'll look at verses 1 to 7 under this heading, what we need to see. So keep your eyes peeled. We need to look. Revelation 4.1. After this, I looked, John writes, and behold, look, see this, a door standing open in heaven. So this is an incredible gift. God wants us to see behind the curtain. He wants to see what he's up to. He wants to see reality. So Jesus opens this door, invites us, to look at his control, his sovereignty, and this great reality. I love this quote by James Hamilton. Jesus was standing at the door of the church in Laodicea, knocking. Remember that back in chapter 3, verse 20? And in 4.1, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. It seems that the door of the church in Laodicea was closed to Jesus, but the door of heaven was thrown wide for John. So do you see the heart of God here? It's good. He's welcoming us in to get all the grace that we need to overcome. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So who's this voice? Who's speaking here? Well, look back at chapter 1, verse 10. I think that verse is up here. Um, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying... Write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. It's Jesus. He's the one speaking. So in Revelation 4, 1, the first voice, which had, he had heard speaking to him like a trumpet, this is Jesus talking, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, 
a throne stood in heaven. So heaven is described first as a throne room. So, and you have to notice the centrality of the throne in this vision, okay? And in this chapter. So the centrality of the king of kings. He is in control. His kingdom is coming. He is the king. In fact, the word throne is repeated 14 times in this chapter. So behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So what do you think the significance of the rainbow is? Promise of? What's it, what's it associated with? Come on. <laughs> Mercy through judgment, Right? So what's going to happen in the rest of Revelation is all these bowls and judgment and all this stuff. So, and then there's these warnings that Jesus just gave. So you could be fearful. Remember the rainbow. The God who saves through judgment. Hide in the ark. Find safety in the ark. And you will be safe. So around the throne was a rainbow. This is the God of promise. He can be trusted. He's the God of mercy through judgment. Don't Resist and reject this king and rebel against him like the people in the days of Noah, but trust him. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 old elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these guys? Are they human, angelic? You know, commentators go back and forth, probably angelic representatives of the people of God. Um, you remember there was the angel representing each of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Either way, if, if they are, you know, representative of the Old Testament saints, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, it represents all the people of God. They represent all the people of God. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What's that sound like? What's it? alluding to in the Old Testament. What's the echo? Sinai. Okay? You can't get near this God without a mediator. He has a law. He's a judge. Like, whoa, this is fearful. So aren't you glad that Revelation 5, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but Revelation 5 means that we can approach and with confidence. But here, the God of Sinai Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Wait, what? I thought there was only one spirit of God. Well, look back at chapter 1, verse 4. I think that verse is up here. So grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Father, Spirit, Son. Seven in Biblical numerology is a number of completeness, right? So the fullness of the Spirit. One Spirit, but this is a symbolic way of speaking of the fullness of the Spirit. So before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What's going on here? Well, first off, 
Imagine like a massive moat, okay? That's not a great, you know, example, but it gets at it. The idea is separation. He is completely holy and set apart. God lives in inapproachable light, like it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So everything in chapter 4 is distancing us, actually, from God. All the attendants and the retinue, like surrounding him, all the emissaries. It means we, how do we get near to this God? So think about it. The greater a public figure or a governmental figure, the harder it is to get to him or her, right? Like you can't just go to London and I'd like to go see the queen today. Yeah, nice try. Not going to happen. So the bigger the entourage, the bigger the security detail, this king is unlike any other in holiness and majesty. What right do you have? What ability do you have to approach this infinitely worthy one? How in the world are you going to approach this God? Again, aren't you thankful for chapter 5? Because that's exactly how, through the blood of the Lamb, the Redeemer. Okay, but again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you can see how they hang together. Chapters 4 and 5 go together. It's also true that the sea in the Bible usually has connotations of chaos and the powers of evil. Okay, so this sea of glass, okay, and think they didn't have a technology where they could make you know, glass really perfectly clear and flat. So this is not placid like the glass you would hope for on a, on a lake when you're going to go water skiing. Imagine this like crystal like this, you know, it's, it's still, but it's, it's like this crystal sea. So all the chaotic powers associated with the sea are still because they are subject to his control. He is control, which is really good news if you want to overcome, right? If you know that Satan's like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour, and our battle's not against flesh and blood, and we have an enemy of our souls, like, aren't you glad that, come on up here, let me show you something. He who's on the throne is greater than any enemy, earthly or angelic, you know, fallen angel. So, you can overcome. So things on earth can appear out of control. It can seem like Satan's winning, but come on up here. You've got to see this. In fact, turn to Revelation 15, 1 to 4. Listen to how similar the language is here. Revelation 15. 1 to 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast. Where did the beast come from? Out of the sea, right? And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sang a triumphant song of deliverance. So no wonder when you get to Revelation 21.1 and the vision of the new creation, new heavens, new earth, everything made new, there's no more sea. It doesn't mean there's not going to be wakeboarding in heaven. 
and the new creation. That's not the point. The point is that all evil will be eradicated. All the chaos that is associated with Leviathan and the beasts that come out of the sea, it's all eradicated. And then instead of a sea surrounding the throne in Revelation 22, what issues forth from the throne is the river of living water that flows and all of this fruit is born and it's for the healing of the nations. So, this is really good news that this sea is under this king's control. We don't have to fear any threats or enemies. And around the throne, back to Revelation 4, 6, around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So most likely these living creatures are representative of the whole created order. So all creatures, all creation, worshiping the creator king. So together with the elders, the 24 elders, right? All of God's people, Old and New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. You have all creation and all God's people worshiping him. So this vision is a glimpse of reality, even if things look so much differently down here on a Monday morning. No matter how things appear here on earth, how out of control, John and his readers and us, we need a vision of reality. We need a vision of what's real and true if we're going to overcome, persevere, conquer. We also, in addition to seeing, we also need to hear what is said in verses 8 to 11. So second point, look at verses 8 to 11. There's this pattern actually in Revelation, if you read through the book, and it's clearly present in chapters 4 and 5. The visions are interpreted by what is said or by the hymns in chapters 4 and 5. So what you hear interprets what you see. Okay, so it's important. The words are important because they interpret this throne room scene. So listen here, Revelation 4, what's being said. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So what's being said here? What do we need to hear? First off, holy, holy, holy. And remember, Chad read Isaiah 6. That's how that vision started when Isaiah's in the temple and he beholds the true king, the king of kings. So what is holy, holy, holy? What does that even mean? You know, we talk about holiness as being set apart, right? For special use. You know, there were like holy shovels and holy this and holy that in the Old Testament. So does it just mean separate, separate, separate? 
kind of hard to really get emotionally, you know, tied in with that, you know, and start singing it. Well, think about it this way. Remember in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness is, yes, his set-apartness. Like the fact that he's in a class by himself. There's no one like him is a negative way of saying what holy says. He is completely unique. He is utterly in a class by himself and singular. He is the greatest, the best in every category. And whenever that holiness is revealed, what do we see? Glory. Are you tracking with me here? So let me give you a couple examples. We just got to see the redwoods. There's no trees in the world like them. Sequoias, right? So there's one called Hyperion. I think you have to hike out in the middle of nowhere to see that one. But it's like 379 feet tall. No tree like it. So it's just like not just a ho-hum tree. There's weight because it's in a class by itself. It's holy. It's in a class by itself. You see it. Whoa, that's glorious. Sequoia trees. Not the tallest, but the most girth. You know, General Sherman, 36 feet wide. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't know. How tall is this ceiling? Bill, does anybody know? Anybody know? What? 40 feet. Okay, there you go. General Grant is 40 feet at its widest spot, even though it's not the largest by volume tree in the world. Okay, so if General Grant fell over on laying down this way, it'd be as tall as this roof. There's no tree like this. It's in a class by itself. And so you go, whoa. There's weight to it. You want to point people to say, look at that. That's awesome. You see, we're wired for this. Why do sports lovers share video with the play of the week? Why, why do everybody like, oh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, I don't care who you think is the best. But you say, he's the greatest. He's in a class by himself. He's the holiest basketball player. And so when you watch him play, the glory, you can behold the glory. You see, we're wired for superlatives. We're wired for the greatest things. The greatest things have weight, right? Is anybody with me here? Okay. So all those things are just little tiny echoes of the way we're wired because we're wired for God. We should be worshiping God with at least, if not way more passion than, again, the things that make us go, wow, on earth. All of that should just be you know, tracing the sunbeam back to the sun. Because there is no one like God. He is greater, infinitely greater in every category than anyone or anything. So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is omnipotent. Okay, so if you need to overcome, that's really good news. So this is not like, hey, let's talk about omnipotence in some abstract, you know, theological, egghead sort of ivory tower way. No, it's like, this is the king. You're suffering. You're going through hard stuff. This is street-level theology. God is on the throne. He is the king of kings. There's no one stronger. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Do you see? 
That's encouraging if you need to overcome, if you need to conquer, if you need to persevere in faith. So he's in control, brothers and sisters. Like, for these first readers, Roman power and authority, you know, was putting a squeeze on the Christians. But Roman power and authority was nothing in comparison to this king. God reigns, period, full stop. So imagine if you're a Christian in Afghanistan right now. Like, do you see how badly they would need this? Because they are scared of what the Taliban are going to do. I would be. Or we can get all freaked out about politics and whatever. Hey, hey, come on up here. You got to see this. Listen, we need this, don't we? So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord who was and is and is to come. His eternity. And again, this is not just abstract, let's open the systematic theology book and, you know, like just consider. No, 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 no. Just like when God says, I am who I am, He's not just trying to blow your head with, wow, self-sufficiency. What? Yes, He is trying to blow your head with that. But the point is, that bush burned and didn't even need any fuel. Wow, God doesn't need us. He's like no other God, Isaiah 64, 4. Who's ever heard of a God like you who works for those who wait for him? He doesn't need you. You need him. He runs on himself. Thank you very much. You come to him for help. He's not going, boy, I don't know how I'm going to get my will done. Like, I hope, there will, I hope somebody comes and raises their hand, you know? No, this is the king. So who was and is and is to come, his eternity is so encouraging for people who are struggling in the present. So, four living creatures doing what all creation is intended to do. 24 elders doing what all God's people are intended to do. So this is an anticipation, an early living out of where everything is headed. It's a call for those on earth to live out the worship that will mark the new creation. All right, but before we get to that last point, God's, that which is happening in heaven, you know, on earth, let's just circle back to this idea of conquering. How do we conquer? All right, so you get this language over and over again of uh, you got to conquer. You got to conquer. You got to conquer in those letters to Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia and all of that. And it can be sobering. Like you can feel, ah, I sometimes I just want to throw in the towel. Sometimes I just want to throw up my hands. And so it's sobering. Like, how do I overcome? I need strength. I need grace. Not just to be told to overcome, I need help. But that's why chapters 4 and 5 follow. They're so encouraging. We can and will overcome because the Lamb has overcome for us. He's conquered for us. So look again at chapter 3, verse 21, and note this connection. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So do you see how 321 leads into chapter 4, which leads into chapter 5? Like, how in the world can we approach this, this glorious God? Well, the lamb approaches, 
takes the scroll, opens it, and now we can conquer. We can approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. So his overcoming on the cross enables our overcoming as we take up our cross. Okay, so it's another way of saying like, you know, Jesus in John 16, 33. Remember when he said, you will have tribulation in this world. It will be hard to persevere. Revelation 2 and 3. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Revelation 4 and 5. Do you see? It's a cool little contextual insight from James Hamilton here. Um, The quotes should be up on the screen there. So the church is surrounded by the glory of Christ and the glory of God. Do we have that one? There it is. So the church is surrounded by the glory of Christ and the glory of God. The letters to, to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are preceded in 1, 9 to 20 by John's vision of the risen Christ in glory. And they are followed by John's description of what he saw in the heavenly throne room in chapters 4 and 5. One of the main points of application is that your life is positioned in the same way that the letters to the seven churches are. You are surrounded by the glory of God. Jesus in chapter 1, letters to the churches, some commendation, but a lot of warning, and we go, ah, I need help to overcome. More glory, chapter 4, chapter 5. Jesus has overcome. You and I, by God's grace, can overcome following the lamb that was slain. So, Listen, as a shepherd, like as a pastor, my burden is for us to overcome. Like that's part of my calling, part of my job. Like, oh, that every single person in this room and the people that we welcome in in the future, that God brings in by his grace, that we would all overcome like Barb Armstrong is that we would all persevere in faith to the end and die in faith. How's that going to happen? Come on up here. you got to see this. And listen, he who has ears, let him hear. Think of others. Chuck Barmore, overcome like him, like Barry Steele. J.C. Ryle wrote this in his book, Holiness. When we have carried you to your narrow bed, Let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you are a true believer. Let us not have to say in a hesitating way one to another, I trust he's happy. He talked so nicely one day, and he seemed so pleased with a chapter in the Bible on another occasion. And he liked such a person who is a good man. Let us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. It's a call for us to be overcomers, to persevere in faith. And that's not just my job and the job of the rest of the shepherds, though it is. It's our job, meaning all of us who call ourselves Christians. Perseverance in faith, Overcoming, conquering is a community project. Hebrews 3, 12, 13 to 14. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So brothers and sisters, let's cling to Christ and let's help each other cling to Christ. We can conquer because he first conquered for us. We can persevere. We will persevere because, not because of our iron will. We can't take the glory for this. We'll puff out our chests. We can and will persevere because he perseveres in his covenantal love for us, his people, for everyone who's trusted in Jesus as their Savior, following him as their Lord, because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Yes? Amen? So, the truths of Revelation 4 and 5 are encouraging their strength, their grace for us to be able to conquer and persevere. Finally, just few thoughts on the importance of this chapter in our lives on earth as it is in heaven so remember jesus said to john and he invites us come on up here you got to see this remember those four living creatures heavenly worship leaders you know did you notice that they had eyes everywhere so it's a weird picture if you try to imagine it which a lot of apocalyptic literature is weird it's kind of like a dream you know like weird stuff happens and you know, I turn, and there's a lamb, and now it's a lion. What, like, ah, what's going on here? The other way around. Lion, lamb. Okay, that's next week. So, what's the point of these eyeballs everywhere? Nothing escapes their notice. They see everything, and they're constantly praising God. They see reality as it is, and they worship. We are oftentimes blinded by unbelief or ignorance or our suffering gets up here and we just think everything is terrible and God's not in control or he's forgotten about us or our doubts or our cynicism or our hearts grow cold and our lips fall silent. Like, we need to see the glory of God. So Jesus says, come on, let me show you reality. Behold so that our hearts will warm and our lips will willingly declare his praise on earth as it is in heaven. So may it not be said, remember Jesus said this, warning to the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship is in vain. Like, oh, we don't want that to be the case. That's not an overcomer. So if you've lost your first love, that's one of the letters to the seven churches. If you are lukewarm, what does Jesus say? Be earnest and repent. Have you displaced God's rightful place at the center of your life? So let I me mean, just imagine this like comical picture, which is kind of what it is when we do this. Imagine you trying to climb over the, you know, so God is awesome and great. We're these little time, and we're trying to like clamber over the crystal sea to get to the throne and go, off, buddy. Like, it's just so silly. But that's what our putting ourselves at the center, it's silly. Or if we displace God with some other thing as our first thing, idols, it's crazy. So has some idol, something you love more than God, like you displaced his central place in your heart, your life. No wonder our hearts get cold and our lips get silent. So what sets us free? We need to see. Behold God's glory. Hear his grace and his truth in Christ. The radiance of the sun withers the roots of idolatry. And then worship starts to grow and bear fruit. 
We see reality and we are gripped by it and it changes us. So we need to behold our worthy God and worship Him. Come Friday night and do just that. C.S. Lewis in A Word About Praising, it's an awesome little like four-page essay, he said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious people praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Ouch. So remember my conviction of how much I need to repent of my cold heart and lack of, like I'm so quick to complain, slow to praise. My soul must not be healthy. So we can be earnest and repent and go after reality. Get our eyes glued on Jesus so that our soul gets healthy and then we're praising him. We're worshiping him. So, listen, there's, there's no lip service in heaven. <laughs> okay? Like, these beings and the elders just continually falling down. You know, we sing a couple choruses, like, over and over again. We're kind of like, okay, next song. You know, like, sometimes. Not, I'm not. S- some people. Well, how in the world? Psalm 136 is like, over and over. Steadfast love of the Lord. Doors forever. It's because it's not real to us. Like, what if you had eyes everywhere? You could see reality. God is so glorious that not one of the times those elders fall down and cast their crowns was at lip service. Well, I'm supposed to do this because this is like the heavenly throne room and everything, so I've got to like keep doing this. They're constantly blown away. That's how glorious God is. So, yeah, with us, familiarity breeds indifference. Like, Lord, Help that not to happen. Help me to just get tuned into your glory. Never can really get bored with you. You are an infinite well of, like, amazing because he's holy, holy, holy. There's no one like him. So, no lip service in heaven. Let's let heaven show us how to live on earth. Let's take our cues from heaven. So think about it. Lord's Prayer, just pray it with me as the musicians come up. Just the first couple petitions, particularly that third one. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can join me if it's your art. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.